Hi, this is Wyatt Rice. You're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey everybody, welcome back to Bluegrass Jam Along. I have a really, really special episode for you today, the first of two. Um... A while ago, when I started putting together the Dot Watson episodes, I also realised that this year was going to be the 40th anniversary of Tony Rice's Church Street Blues record, which is my favourite Tony Rice record and just one of my favourite records of all time. Um, So I couldn't let the opportunity go to celebrate it in some form. And a bit like the Dot Watson episodes, I started out and it's just snowballed. And I've been having some great conversations with people about this record. Um, people who knew Tony, people who played with Tony, people who were inspired by Tony, all sorts of people. Um, and this first chunk coming up is people who worked with Tony, uh, knew Tony, kind of people who were close to him in some form. Um, and the second episode will sort of go on a bit to explore the legacy of Church Street Blues and who Tony's influenced. And, you know, there's a bit of crossover, And uh, but I thought the rough groupings kind of worked. And so this episode, we're going to hear from Tim Stafford, um, who co-wrote the biography of Tony. We're also going to hear from Caroline Wright, who co-wrote it with him, spent time on the road with Tony. Um, We're going to hear from Wyatt Rice, and this is, as far as I'm aware, the first interview Wyatt's done since Tony passed. And it was, yeah, that was was quite a thing to get to talk to Wyatt. Um, He was generous with his time. He was thoughtful. It was, yeah, just fascinating. Um, I also talked to Mike Marshall. I've talked to Alison Krauss, I've talked to Brian Sutton, and I've talked to Chris Eldridge, and you'll hear from all of those people in this first episode. Um, I really hope you enjoy it. It's been it's been astonishing, actually, getting to make this and to have these conversations, and it's, it's meant a lot to me. Um, and the generosity of the people who've taken part has sort of been a bit overwhelming. Um, I hope you enjoy this. I hope you get as much out of it as I have. So we're going to kick off with Tim Stafford. I think this is a good one. To start with, for some just context, uh, I, oh, it's always a treat talking to Tim, and he's been enormously supportive of the podcast and really encouraging. And yeah, I'm delighted to start this with Tim Stafford. Here we go. It is, and of course, the whole thing about Church Street Blues is that it—he said it was his hardest record to make because he had just depended on the band context for so long, and it was sort of terrifying. For for him to be on his own in that sort of setting, just sort of naked is the way he put it. And he said that he was suffering from pretty severe anxiety at the time. And that probably heightened his anxiety about doing this project because he had always been in a band situation recordings, but he got through it. And that's probably why it was so hard for him. Uh, but it was something that Rounder wasn't interested in, uh, at least Ken Irwin. When he talked to Ken Irwin about what he wanted to do and described it to him, and, he, and his, his whole goal was to sort of recreate the early Gordon Lightfoot records. That's what he wanted to do with Church Street Blues. And Ken said, well, this is not the direction we want you to take. And then remember now, this is the time, too, uh, 81, 82, and this is probably Tony's most creative, fertile time. He's mm-hmm. He just came out with Manzanita, all these other great records, you know, around the same time in the late 70s, early 80s. And, man, you know, he would he was going to just get ready to start the Bluegrass album 
thing, which is supposed to be a Tony Rice bluegrass album. And so it's a very fertile time, but Kim wanted them to do more things like the bluegrass album, I think. I think that's what he had in mind for him. And who knows, man, you know, they talk back and forth and it may just be Ken's idea. Maybe the rounders, all of the rounders would have got together and they would have said, yeah, this is a great idea, Tony. So just in that brief conversation, though, Tony decided rounder wasn't interested, so he went to Barry Claus. And Barry said, sure, man, let's, let's do it. So the first time that rounder was aware of Church Street Blues is when it came out. No way. <laughs> so... And Tony said they weren't happy about it. But, uh, and Wyatt had, had been coming to live. He had actually come out to California, which he'd been wanting to do for quite a while. Finally, Tony, Tony got him an airline ticket and said, come on out. And he stayed at uh, the house there with Leela and Tony. And, uh, Tony was sort of amazed at how far he'd come in his guitar playing. It's just, you know, it wasn't, I guess it was right before that. First thing that, that Wyatt did with Tony was backwaters, which, well, you talk about getting thrown to the fire. I'm sure Wyatt can tell you more about that, but my gosh, man, I mean, that's Tony's favorite record, you know, and the rhythm guitar playing is just immaculate on that record. And obviously, Tony didn't want to do songs like Gold Rush without a second guitar behind it because he wanted it to be a live record. And so he wasn't going to overdub himself, although I think there are. There is one tune, at least on Church Street Blues, that I believe is Tony playing rhythm. Might be Jerusalem Red. Uh, I can't remember. But uh, so anyway, you know, Wyatt ended up playing rhythm guitar on a couple of cuts, and some of the first stuff he ever did with Tony, and first first things he ever recorded. Uh, of course, he was a big. Norman Blake fan, and that's why you've got Orphan Annie and Church Street Blues on the record. I loved his version of House Carpenter. Oh, man. Yeah. To me, that's the most haunting track on the whole record. And I asked him specifically where he, what version of that ancient ballad really um, inspired him. He said he had heard Gene Ritchie do it, but he said it was either Doc Box or Clarence Ashley's version. And so a while back, I went. Somebody asked me about this, and I went back and uh, listened, and it was Clarence Ashley's version for sure. So, uh, and there's just little things from this interview. Uh, for example, as two guitar players, we're talking about playing songs in different positions. Like Catalin McCain is in the A position, and he talked about how he didn't like playing out of the A positions. It was very rare for him to play out of open A. Um, he said he couldn't think of another fiddle tune that he did in open A. He may have done some Grisman tunes out of open A. Um, and he liked it because of where the B section is in the minor chord. It's much easier to do there than to do a capo played in G with a G minor, you know, which is going to dictate a completely closed position approach to it. Um, and also one of the things I thought was pretty funny, uh, I asked him about the melody for his version of Gold Rush being different from Byron Berline's version. And he said, oh, hell yeah, it's a lot different. <laughs> and, you know, in the very first phrase of the tune, Tony goes all the way up to the fifth 
note of the chord. Well, Byron went to the third. And uh, I said, man, he said, it's radically different. There's barely enough there to be able to call it gold rush. <laughs> I said, I don't know about that, man, but it's funny. Everybody does your version now. Yeah. You go yeah. To the jam session, you hear Tommy's version, you know. And he said, yeah, I heard Byron playing it with Monroe, and I thought, this sounds really weird. This ain't Gold Rush. <laughs> He's the one who wrote the tune, you know. So uh, just little insights like that I thought were pretty interesting on the, the material on Church Street Blues, which is, I think it's just a great combination of things. It's a really interesting record for, like, not only the choice of the songs, but there's a certain... There's something in, you know, you listen to Church Street Blues, you listen to One More Night, Streets of London to a certain extent, and it's this this sort of rhythm and melody at the same time, cross-picking thing that Tony does on that record that is just such a cool sound. And you wouldn't hear that with a full band, you know. It's, it just gives it the opportunity to really shine out, and it feels like that's something you hear and is playing a bit more on the Skaggs Rice record on some of the records with David Grisman, just being able to hear the detail in Tony's guitar playing and things like that. It's just beautiful. It is. And, it, you know, the thing about Tony's playing is that a lot of his rhythm playing is, is so transparent. It's uh, I remember a friend of mine, Audie Ratliff, who's a mandolin builder here in East Tennessee. Um, Audie, at the time, Church Street Blues came out, he said, uh, well, I think he may have been talking about Skaggs and Rice, which came out a few years earlier. He said, can you hear the rhythm guitar on there? Can you tell what he's doing? I said, it sort of blends in, don't it? He said, I can't hear it. He said, I, I can't tell what he's doing. And that's just a testament to me to how well his rhythm blended in. But when it's just you, you got much choice, but you notice he does have a very light approach on a lot of his uh, songs on Church Street Blues to where, you know, there's, there's not this straight ahead hard rhythm that you hear. Even when he does that on like, uh, you know, that song you mentioned, uh, One More Night, you know, it's a pretty hard rhythm song. He's not really playing hard on it. It's got a really soft touch to it. And when you get to the cross-picking things like uh, Streets of London and Church Street Blues, you know, he's I think he's coming up with, he's hes doing exactly what Maybelle Carter did. She came up with a style that filled the space. George Shuffler did the same thing with the Stanley Brothers. You have this space because it's wide open. Maybelle Carter was the only instrumentalist. She had to come up with something that did lead and rhythm at the same time. Uh, you know, in the Stanley Brothers, it was he was the Clinch Mountain boy. Hmm. You know, George Shuffler. So he he sort of had to uh, to fill the space, and the cross picking thing was a way to do that. And that's what Tony's doing here, but it's an unusual thing. Like a you know, the role on Church Street Blues catches your ear because it's got a timing thing in it that makes you think. Now wait a minute, where is that? Where did that go? You know, um, it's got an extra loop in it that somehow fits back in. When you, you know, and I, every guitar player I knew at the time, and still to this day, you see it on the internet. They have to learn that thing. They got there's something about that role on that, and it's not what Norman did at all. You know, if you go back and listen to Norman's recording, which is by the way, is amazing. 
and they yeah. had some of the best playing. Oh my God, you know. Uh, but it's based on this chordal thing uh, that Norman did. It's hard to describe what Norman did because he didn't always play inside the chord. Um, but I love what he did on it. And Tony's take is just so different. It's such a open thing with the uh, the cross picked version of it. And it's, you can tell that it was live just by listening to it, but especially when you go look at the Homespun video. Yeah. Which is amazing. To me, that sounds better than the record by far. And you get to see him wink, you know, and play, play you folks a tune and he winks, you know, which is <laughs> it's It's still one of the best uh, Tony Ross performances in my book is that Homespun version of the title track. It's astonishing, isn't it? It's just, you, and I think there's that thing, just the way Tony approaches some of those roles and he doesn't alternate pick them. He just sort of sweeps on through with those downstrokes. And it's just, it, it, there's something about the the syncopation of that that just, it's, you know, it's unique, isn't it? It is. And then, you know, that specific tone that he got when he used his fingers and the pick, which is something he explored a lot later on. He actually did it all through his career, but a lot of people didn't realize he was doing it. Uh, but, you know, in latter parts of his career, when he was called on to do solo numbers like Shenandoah uh, mm. live, he would use his fingers a lot with the pick, and it got this tonality that you hear. And I hear it there on uh, Streets of London, particularly. I don't hear it on Church Street Blues because he's using the pick to sweep, like you said, all the way through the, the cross pick and roll. And it's not a standard cross pick roll. Uh, it's not a George Shuffler two down, one up, straight ahead. You know, it's not a Clarence White alternating roll like he would do on, uh, you know, Farewell Blues. Uh, it's it's his own thing. And uh, there's there's several phrases there that he uses all downstrokes on that roll. Which, which gives it the tonality that can't be beat because downstrokes rule, you know, that's <laughs> just the way it is. It's really, really interesting to hear you saying about, um, like, it's a powerful sound, but he had quite a light touch at times playing it because I've heard, I've, it might have even been in the book when I read the book that you wrote, um, talking about other people trying to play his D28, the antique, and finding the setup quite light and people really struggling to get a tone out of it because it just, you know, it's not set up like your average bluegrass dreadnought would be. No, and, and it didn't respond when you tried to hit it hard like you would with a dreadnought because you want to hear it ring, you know, on those D and G strings, pow. You want to hear that bluegrass power that's in most of those old dreads. Well, that guitar didn't respond to that. You couldn't really do that. You had to do a very light touch in order to hear that power. It was there. But Tony, and he had it set up exactly the way he locked it. It was almost like a telly. The way it was set up, it was so light. Um, and he continually had Snubby Smith working on it, you know, trying to get it set up um, better to suit his plan. As he got older, he wanted it even lighter action, you know. But he didn't want it to bust. So there's a <laughs> real challenge there. And uh, that guitar... It's, it's got overtones on it that are just really, really unusual. You know, um, when I played it, I noticed that too. And you can hear it when Tony plays it. I hear those overtones. Part of what makes it sound like it does, you know. But 
Tony would be the first to tell you, and a lot of recordings from this period prove it, that it wasn't the guitar, it was the man, it was the right hand, you know, because he did use an ovation on Manzanita. Uh, Backwaters was uh, ovation in uh, Santa Cruz, you know, mostly. I think he used the antique on one or two songs. On that whole record, it's his favorite record, you know. And I don't think he did it just to prove, hey, you know, I can play this without this old guitar, which is obviously and rightfully so part of the legend Tony's playing, but it's so much in that right hand. It's kind of like trying to learn how to uh, to sign something exactly like somebody else. You're going to try to replicate John Harper's signature, you know. You can try to do that, um, and you can get some really pretty signatures that way, but it's not going to be John Harford. It's not going to be, you know, it's not that signature. Uh, and it's not I, going to be I'm, you either. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, part of the thing that makes us all unique is that is our approach to what we do is individual um, because we don't know any better. It's like Doc Watson didn't know anybody. Or obviously, nobody could show him anything because he could see. So he had to go by feel when he did it. I'm sure that Mike Cleveland's the same way on the fiddle, you know. Uh, of course, those of, the, of us that have sight, man, we just learn how to do stuff. It's like Sam Bush playing from the elbow when he plays, you know. Nobody else plays like that. But it's just the way that he – and what it did was it allowed him to do other things on the instrument that nobody else could do. And I think that's what happened with Tony. That technique that he developed with the thumb allowed him to get tone and do things with the right hand that nobody had been able to do before. And I went on to ask Tim about um, about when he first heard the record, which is a question I asked a lot of people during his interviews. Um, this is what Tim had to say. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I go back and listen to, or I think about where I was at in my playing and my life. Uh, I had been a Tony fan since the first time I heard, uh, heard him on the radio. It was from the the Tony Rice guitar, or not Tony Rice guitar, the uh, the album, the 77 album that he hates, the first rounder solo album. I think it was way downtown. And I heard that and I thought, is that a guitar? Man, man, I couldn't even tell that was a guitar, you know. And then it wasn't long after that, that I heard, um, I heard the Crow album, you know, the 0044. And then, not long, around the same time, I was just voracious trying to find anything I could about this guy's playing. I heard uh, California Autumn, and that just blew me away. I just couldn't believe how good. And then I had a friend who had the first guitar album, the first solo album Tony did for uh, the Japanese label that ended up being released on Rebel. Uh, I think it's called Tony Rice Guitar. You know, it has Freeborn Man and Nine Pound Hammer and all that on it. And it had this. 10 minute version of Ruben, you know, and I, at the time, I, that was what I was into, man. I really liked these extended solo things and what, how he was getting some of the sound of all those different things that he did. And I used to listen to that nonstop. And, uh, and I also was listening to Crow at the time because I had been a banjo player and I got into Crow before I got into Tony. So, uh, but by the time Church Street Blues came out, um, it was right before I went to graduate school. I was, uh, or to PhD, work on my PhD in, um, 
uh, Miami University in Ohio. I went there in 84. So I was still at ETSU. I was working on my master's degree. And uh, I was learning new things on the guitar and just trying to experiment a lot. And then I, I saw this record in the store, which is that's the way you bought records back then. And uh, I had to get any new Tommy Ross record. I had to get it. You know? And, and uh, I put it on not knowing anything about it. And then I realized it's just him, you know. And uh, I was mesmerized by it. I, I, I thought it was incredible. And uh, it's one of those that, you know, I didn't try to learn how to play any of his stuff, but I played along with it. I would put the record on and play the rhythm guitar, you know, and it was, there's something about Tony's rhythm playing, as we talked about before, it's just transformative, you know. Uh, and then when you hear it uh, playing with you, it's like it, it pushes you up, you know. There's something about playing along with him that just puts you in that groove too, you know, it's better than playing with a drum machine. <laughs> uh, you know, it just, it, uh, it brings a whole new level of groove to it and feeling that, uh, that you actually can fall into real easy. So I did that a lot and, uh, came back to this album after a series of years and, and just was even more mesmerized by to this day. I, I can listen to, uh, a house carpenter just get chills. You know, there's that position that he played it out has a lot to do with it, but it fit the melody of the song better than any version I've ever heard. I've never heard a version that captures the melody in context the way that his rhythm pattern and his, the position that he plays out of those. It's, it's, it's ultra homing. And, uh, I'm glad that this record's getting the attention it deserves, you know, because I think it's one of his masterpieces. But you're talking about a guy that had a whole bunch of masterpieces. So it's hard to narrow down. You ask people what their favorite Tony Ross album is, you'll get about 25 different answers, you know. Uh, but this one probably comes up as much as any, and it's definitely the most different of any of his albums. I think it's particularly interesting though that Tony was going through a, an anxiety crisis where he spe specifically mentions agoraphobia at the time. He, had, he was having trouble in crowds, which could be a death sentence for a professional touring musician mm. at the time that he recorded this record. And it probably even contributed, like I say, to, to that because it's just him and he was terrified of that. You know, uh, He did seek uh, therapy for it when he was living in San Francisco. They, he had biofeedback and he said it made a huge difference. It actually turned him around to where he could, he could function, you know, as a road musician. Uh, and it got him much better. But this record came at a time when all that was happening in his private life that just makes it even more incredible, you know. So, I mean, it it's sounds like, like such a confident, right? It sounds like a document of such a confident musician who's utterly assured in what they are and who they are and what they want to say. It doesn't sound like, but that's often the case with musicians. Do you know what I mean? The, the expression of the anxiety is the thing that comes out most, you know, do you need to be expressing anxiety to be expressing something 
pure. It's the the well, times when we, you're not we, making the music they struggle with. Right, right. But with, and but when Tony was in the studio, man, it was still all about guided precision missiles. You know, <laughs> he was so locked into that, and all he never deviated from that. His life, his life, and his uh, it was all about precision and trying to make it uh, as as good as it possibly could be. So next up, we have Wyatt Rice. Um, Wyatt not only is Tony's brother, Wyatt is also the only other musician to actually play on Church Street Blues other than Tony. And we had a really interesting chat about how that happened, um, a little bit of how it came about, a bit of the experience itself, just like fascinating stuff. This is, you know, it's like getting to hear somebody who was part of history tell you about history. Um, yeah, fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed this one. Here comes Wyatt Rice. I was trying to figure out a while ago, to the best of my memory, uh, the timeline in which a lot of this stuff went down. And I always keep keep looking back, uh, remembering that we had recorded uh, Church Street Blues before uh, the Backwaters record. But I could be wrong about that. But that's my memory of it anyway. There was a lot happening during that. I mean, everything happened so quick. You know, at the time, Tony, you know, he, of course, he was just living in California. And I was living in Florida. So if I, if I back up a little bit in time, uh, he used to send me and my brother Ronnie, you know, tapes and stuff, you know, with the, he would send us rough mixes on cassette to listen to before records came out and stuff. Even when I was about 10, 10 or 11 years old, me and my mom and dad flew out to uh, California to see Tony for a visit. That was really exciting for me uh, at that that young of an age because uh, we had a jam session. The next night, uh, he had David Grisman and Daryl Anger come over, mm-hmm. and we had a jam session. And uh, we're going to stay a couple of days and then fly back. And then I asked my mom, I said, I'd spoken to Tony about it first. I said, man, I, I'd like to stay. He says, well, see what mom has to say about it. Because <laughs> I was supposed to go home and go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> and then mom says, well, I'm going to talk to dad about it. And he was a little stricter. So <laughs> in the end, I got my way. I got to uh, to stay. And during this time, uh, I actually got to stay a couple weeks. Uh, I think Tony and my mom had a lot to do with that, talking my dad into to letting me stay. So that meant me flying back home by myself. And Tony, I remember Tony saying, oh, he, he'll be just fine. Don't worry about it. He said, we'll make sure he gets to the plane and. So you can imagine, I'm just, you know, like I said, 10 or 11 during this period. So after mom and dad left, Tony, like every day we went to like Grisman's house. This was during the time that they were uh, rehearsing to do the first David Grisman quintet record. So they would have rehearsals at Grisman's house. And... I, I was there for a lot of, you know, all that. 
And at the same time, Tony was recording a solo record, one just called Tony Rice, that was on Rounder Records. It's the one that had uh, a few songs on it I can remember, like uh, Banks of the Ohio and uh, the Grisman tune there, uh, Rattlesnake. That 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 happened first, and then I was just blown away as a as a kid about this new acoustic music. I kind of knew then. I said, "Man, this is what I want to do <laughs> one of these days." So fast forward in time, you know, when I turned. Uh, uh, you know, 16, 16, 17 years old. I used to call Tony up and bug him on the phone. <laughs> he knew that I wanted to play really bad. So some of the, some of the tunes like uh, I learned back then was like one of the first ones is one he wrote. He showed me a few chords to it prior to that time. You know, I just knew, you know, some blue, you know, bluegrass tunes and flat picking tunes and, and such. And nothing too much about that music that music that I was so excited about. Anyway, yeah, fast forward to uh, when I was 17 years old, Tony had called me. And I can't remember, like, like I said, I can't remember absolutely the timeline on this of which record was recorded first. I always keep remembering that it was Church Street. So... I was so excited about it. I said, man, I've really hit it big time this time. I said, I'm going to go to a studio and record. <laughs> so Tony uh, flew me out. There was a lot of flying. I mean, I, like I said, a lot happened, man. I was flying back and forth, you know, two or three times during those years, you know, 1982. And I stayed out there with him for quite a while, almost a year or two. So, yeah, I fly in at the San Francisco, you know, airport, and he picks me up, and we go to his place, and it all happened so quickly, you know. He says, here's the tunes. He says, I want you to play rhythm on these tunes for me, which was Gold Rush, uh, Jerusalem Ridge uh, was one, and Cattle on the Cane. And there was another one that was a vocal tune that had to be the the last one that was recorded. That was uh, the end of the night. That's the last one he did on the record was one called Pride of Man. And I wasn't expecting to play any rhythm on that. And this happened in a period of like, you know, a, a short time span of, you know, three three days for the whole record. Right. If my memory recalls right. So I was just in, uh, in heaven, man. I was so happy to be there doing what I'm, I was doing, even though if it's just, you know, playing rhythm, uh, and the rhythm playing on that record is, is brilliant. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like somebody's first time in the studio or it doesn't, there's no, you know, the quality of the rhythm playing is, I, you can't imagine anybody else having gone in and done it better. It works perfectly on that record. It's astonishing to hear that that was pretty much one of your first experiences of being in a studio. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I was in, for me, I was like in heaven 
uh, doing this. Uh, and I didn't have a worry in the world that I wasn't nervous or anything. Uh, back during that time, I was just so excited about it. At the time, you know, he was living in uh, uh, Corta Madeira, California. And in his house there, we went, you know, one night we had, you know, messed around and played played the tunes. Gold Rush, I kind of already knew. And Jerusalem Ridge and Cat on the Cane was one that I wasn't too familiar with. But we sit there and practice, you know, went over it a few times and that was basically it. Hmm. And, and then the next day we went to the studio and started recording it and we'd record a take it one or two takes of it. Then that was it. And, uh, he would keep the, you know, the best take and it was all, you know, live. It was no, no overdubs or nothing. So, very exciting. And did it feel, so talking to other people about that record, um, it feels to people like it was really different from everything else Tony was doing at that time, to the extent that he, he said in Tim Stafford and Caroline Wright's book, he took it to the label and they weren't that interested in it. So he took it somewhere else. You know, yeah. it feels like listening back for me, it's such a perfect record, but it feels like it was not what people yeah. were expecting. Yeah, I recall some of that, too, of him uh, being on the phone, you know, making phone calls to uh, to Rounder. And I remember him being kind of upset about it, although I didn't really say anything. I'm just in the background, you know, trying to practice guitar. I had my own little room, so, but I'd kind of overheard some stuff, and he came out. And I was kind of asking him about it. And he says, man, he said, and he was telling, you know, me been, that they didn't think that was the right direction for him to take right then was to do a solo record. They wanted like another bluegrass record type record. He kind of got, uh, he was a little mad about it. So I think he, you know, he made something else happen. He made a phone call to Barry, Barry Paul's, at Sugar Hill, and they they said yes, we'll do it, Tony. So, <laughs> and that's that's how that 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 came along. And I, so, it always makes me think now. I mean, it I think it's one of his one of the more. I mean, all his records are really good. I mean, but that one being a solo record, do you think that? Uh, I know probably after it came out, I bet Rounder wishes now that they would have done it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I don't know. And a couple of people I've spoken to, like Bob, I spoke to Bob Minner um, about this. And a couple of people said one of the things that makes that record special is that Tony didn't really do another one like it. It's not like yeah. one in a long line of singer songwriter style albums. It's, it's special because it was a one off. Yeah. He already had, you know, he had it planned out what he wanted to do and had it, you know, or he, he, he already knew in his head exactly what, what he wanted to do for that record. So, and previous records, you know, and the ones after that too. Yeah. He always had a, a, you know, 
in his mind exactly what he wanted to do. And do you remember um, which guitars you used on Church Street Blues? I'm guessing Tony probably played the, D the D28. Yes, he used his D28. At the time, I had a 68 D18 I used on uh, on Church Street Blues. And I also used it some on Backwaters, too, with the exception of one song. Because on the Backwaters record, he used an ovation on a lot of cuts, with the exception of uh, two or three tunes. I know in the book it says one tune, but there was there's two other tunes I think he used that used that on on the Backwaters record when uh, I mean he had both guitars there, but there's something about the ovation he. That's one of the first guitars, like when I showed up at his place that I seen, it was like the couch guitar. It was in the, it was, he had it laying up in his chair in the living room. And it's the first time I'd ever seen one. Hmm. Uh, and I said, man, what's this? And he said, that's an ovation. And uh, he kept it all out all the time and was, was playing on it and practicing on it. So. I kind of looked at it for a few minutes and then played down and I said, man, uh, I want to see you. Where's the Martin at? <laughs> <laughs> at a young age like that, I didn't know what was going on with the ovation. I just, uh, it played okay, but it didn't sound like, you know, a dreadnought, uh, or at least during that time period. I didn't, I didn't learn until later on. And, you know, it's what he's seen in those guitars. They, real easy to play and they re recorded very well so and i guess if you've got two guitars going on at the same time and one of them's a d28 one's an ovation they're going to take up slightly different spots in the mix for each other yeah but he had a way of doing it with his you know with his right hand on some stuff you can't tell which one is which <laughs> depending on what the tune is i guess I think that's the thing is that that idea that the tone comes from the player. That's sort of the perfect example of it. If you can't tell if it's a dreadnought or innovation, then that tells you where the tone's coming from, doesn't it? Yes. For Church Street Blues, you know, we had already recorded. Uh, I know the, the songs that I recorded on the rhythm parts had already been done. I, I thought I was finished. And he had done his solo stuff in there. And I was in the control room the whole time, you know, just hanging out, watching this all go down. So, and when it came to the last tune on the, on the third night, the third or fourth night, maybe, I can't remember. I'm going to say the third night, because I believe it was three days. Uh, the last tune that he played was uh, Pride of Man. So he went and played it. And he came in the control room after he finished the tune and got Bob Shoemaker to play it back a couple, couple times. He says, you know what? He said, uh, he looks at me, he says, Wyatt, he says, go in there and sit where I sit. And he says, my D 28s right there. He said, get my D 28. And he said, on Pride of Man, that soon, that song I just recorded, he said, when I take my solo there, he said, I want you to play rhythm behind me. So 
I said, okay. I'd never played the tune before, but I'd heard it, you know, in the control room. So I knew the, already knew the, in my head, I knew the changes already. So I sit down and just played the rhythm to, to that, uh, what he wanted. That was one of those spur of the moment things that I wasn't expecting. So, but it, it worked out pretty good. It's pretty excited about that the way, and that's the last thing that went on the record. <laughs> it's amazing because it's one of those that you listen to now and people are still discovering that record to this day. And if you get people to list the records where everything's like, there's not a, no out of place, everything hangs together beautifully, it's all perfect. It just sounds so together. The idea that you just sort of went in, picked up Tony's guitar and played some rhythm on a song you hadn't played before. And that's, yeah, you know, part it was of that a record. Spur, spur of the moment thing. He was kind of celebrating that the, you know, the record was over and he was, had a smile on his face in the control room. Uh, when he looked at me, I'll never, never forget it. Uh, it's one of those things that always sticks with, sticks with you, you know. I thought I was really something. I said, man. I got to play on a record with my brother and I was so tickled with that. I mean, I was like, man, this is great. And that, that time being 17, uh, I'm thinking now I said, golly, I got to go back to Florida and go back to the shipyard. It's like, after doing this, uh, something clicked in my brain. It's like, you know what? I want, this is, I'd already made up my mind before that, kind of, but this is like the icing on the cake after being in the studio. It was like, man, this is, I want to play music with my brother, Tony. And I said, I'm going to do everything in my I can to make that happen. <laughs> after that, things started, you know, he had other things going on. Like you said, the Bluegrass Album Band. And then it came to a point where um, he wanted to do a unit band and make a go of that. That actually started it out as a, we were going to do this duet thing for a little while and do a tour. And we actually did do a couple of shows up in Canada that were based off the Church Street Blues record. And it was just me and him at the time. And the country gentleman happened to be at one of the gigs up in Canada that we went to. And I think he had already been, been talking to Jimmy Gaudreau. They had been friends for a long time, since the 70s. But Jimmy Gaudreau was, had been playing, you know, with the country gentleman. So we had this gig up in Canada. It was me and Tony playing this two-guitar thing, you know, and he was going to do it was based off of church street blues and a few other tunes. And while we were there, he, I think we played a few tunes and then we took a break and then he went back and asked Jimmy Goodrow. He says, man, you want to get up, and play a few tunes with me and Wyatt. And Goodrow said, yeah. And then after the show, you know, they talked more about it. And then the next thing I know, we, it all like it, it happened so quick. Next thing I know, Jimmy's, he's, we got a, somebody that's booking shows for us. And then 
Tony had asked Jimmy, he says, man, you know, a good bass player. And he says, yeah, he says, I know this guy named Mark Schatz. Hmm. And so the next gig we played at, we got a, a band with Jimmy Goodrow and Mark Schatz. And then that particular unit right there was formed. I mean, that's an amazing few years. <laughs> yeah. So, and that was really, really exciting times for me. Uh, all of it was. And I, I miss him dearly. So, yeah, but Church Street Blues was a fun record to, to do and, you know, be a part of. And I'm glad I got to do it. So next we've got Mike Marshall, who spent a lot of time playing with Tony, sort of in the years before Church Street Blues. Um, and again, it's always interesting talking to Mike. He's just full of insight and just, again, incredibly generous with his time, incredibly supportive, just a joy to get to spend any amount of time with Mike in this this way. Um, and yeah, just full of interesting insights into Tony and into the record. And we kick off talking about... Um, 1750 Arch Street, the studio where this record and lots of other acoustic records that we love were made. Um, and Mike had been back to visit it a couple of weeks beforehand with Brian Sutton. And so we talk about the studio uh, before we sort of get onto the record. So here's Mike Marshall. Oh, and I would like to just add that when I was recording this with Mike, we had some um, tech problems, particularly with the broadband signal at my end, and things dropped out and things got a bit messy. So I've had to edit this a bit. Um, I've had to pitch shift some bits, I've had to get rid of some spaces, I've had to line things up again. Um, it required a bit more work than some of them. But if there's any points where things feel a bit disjointed or a bit disconnected, that's entirely my fault, not Mike's. Um, but I didn't want to not use this stuff. It took a lot of work to put it back together, but I really wanted to keep this in because it was a great chat. So yeah, here's Mike Marshall. It was a legendary studio in many ways. In fact, it was very interesting being there with um, with... Brian, uh, he had never been there. And it's just this house. It's this old mission-style Spanish uh, California house in the Berkeley Hills that had been a, a place where a lot of new classical music was being recorded. There was actually a label called Art Street Studios that specialized in sort of contemporary classical avant-garde stuff. But it was just a home, you know, so it really had a great vibe. Wooden floors, uh, really... Uh, fancy, cool tile everywhere and wrought iron uh, railings going down into the basement and uh, holding up the curtains. Um, but the, the chief engineer there was was Billy Wolf, who was an old friend of David Grisman's. And it's where we recorded the first David Grisman quintet recorded record was made there, as well as Hot Dog. And so Tony really took a liking to it, and he loved Bill Wolf as an engineer. Uh, really great Neumann microphones and AKG mics all around. Um, an old 3M mixing board, which was one-inch tape, eight-track. So I'm sure this was recorded on that machine. Um, so when you have one-inch uh eight track you're actually getting more surface area per uh track than you do on say um two inch 24 track two inch 16 track is the same as two inch eight track 
But by that time, 2-inch 24-track had come out, which gave you more tracks. But sonically, the 1-inch the, the 8-track was actually better sounding, uh, although it limited you, you know, quite a lot in terms of how many tracks you had, <laughs> only 8 tracks. When you think of how records are made today, where it's limitless. Um, but the sound of that machine, the fact that Billy Wolf took care of it so well, uh, and I think Shoemaker was the other engineer who worked there. Uh, they really looked after these machines and made sure they were aligned properly. The tape heads were cleaned regularly. That made for a very special sound. That coupled with the kind of environment that you were recording in, it was it didn't feel like you were in a recording studio. It felt like you were just at somebody's house in this really cool house, an old house from maybe the 20s or 30s. Uh, so it just had tons and tons of vibe, really nice oak trees all around it, flowers. Uh, you could step outside and just chill out. You know, you weren't in an urban area of town, um, like a lot of studios would be in warehouse districts. You know, you walk outside and you're just on the street in San Francisco or something. Uh, you were in a real neighborhood. So I think all of that played into uh, a lot of the magic that came out of that studio, whether you're talking about the first David Grisman Quintet record or um, Manzanita, the Skaggs and Rice duo record, this record, all of the Bluegrass album band records were made there. Um, it's just, it just had a feeling, you know, and, and that's... Uh, that's part of what I think made this great. But as I was saying, by the time this record came out, Daryl and I had long left the David Grisman Quintet. This is this released in 83. I think that was about when we left. Then we signed with the Wyndham Hill Records. And we had kind of headed down a slightly different path from a lot of uh, what we had been doing prior to that. And so I kind of came to this record later. In fact, I think it could have been 10 years after the fact before I really took to it and realized what a masterpiece it was. And what's funny about, I think we talked about this in our last interview, was that living in Germany now, I'm, I'm somehow drawn to American roots music in a way that I might not be if I were living in America, <laughs> it's something that gives me a, a kind of uh, linkage to my a culture. And I sure find myself putting on all the Tony Rice's records. Of course, when he passed away, it was just like a, a bomb going off emotionally for myself and lots of us. And um, we spent a lot of time mourning his loss and uh, just reveling in uh, the greatness of what he gave us. Uh, it, would, it took months to recover from, from him passing. And lots of emails back and forth with people like Tony Rice and Bela Fleck. I mean, with uh, Todd Phillips and Bela and Edgar and uh, Jerry Douglas. I mean, just, just on and on trying to sort of cope with, with it. You know, even though he had long since not been able to play or sing, um, I think none of us were quite ready for 
for him to just not be around. So I, I found myself putting this record on a lot, probably because of the intimacy of it. Just him and his guitar. You really can hear uh, the magic of what he created playing alone like that. So I went through it track by track, if you want to go that deep. Yeah, I mean, what sort of, what really stood out listening to it now? Was there anything that that surprised you? Um, not really, because in a way, you know, I got to sit next to him for hours and hours uh, and really absorb it acoustically in a room. So I knew how wonderful it was, but um, I mean, his playing, uh, you know, but when you listen to it, um, especially now, there were some things that stood out to me. One thing is just how perfect his playing is, of course, uh, rhythmically and and dynamically, and how in tune that damn guitar is. Uh, he just had a magical way of tuning the guitar. Um, never used a tuning, an electronic tuning device. He would just bang that pitchfork on his knee and put it on the bridge and get that A note, and he'd go from there which is really a lesson for all of us who are so addicted to our electronic tuners. What was Tony Rice tuning into that perhaps we, we are missing when we tune so often with our eyes? I was going to say, I spoke to Tim Stafford for this, and he said that, like, bizarrely, much as people talk about Tony's singing and his lead playing and his rhythm playing, one of the things that he was absolutely best at was tuning a guitar. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh it's uncanny um how he dealt with that and how in tune he was with that guitar, how he knew how to temper it to different keys and different chord positions and the capo and how much pressure the capo needed to have on it and the action he was constantly tweaking the guitar him and Todd Phillips were constantly working on it throwing it on the bench and filing a fret or a nut or what have you um, they even put I think a new fingerboard on it at one point did some repairs on it so he was just really in tune with what the guitar needed to be coaxed into perfection um, the other thing that stood out is, you know, a lot of bluegrass guitarists strum the guitar. And, and I, I think that we're, especially on this record, whenever he got into anything slightly intimate, I mean, he's just cross-picking all over the place in his backup, the way he backs himself up. Strumming. It's not really strumming. It's a combination of strumming and cross picking. And it's an extremely unusual uh, pick direction decision making. There's lots and lots of double downs, double and triple down strokes, which most guitar players today, except for Wyatt, <laughs> I think he's the only one who's figured out Tony's right hand that it's a series of double downs and and uh, that give a certain 
kind of sound to his to to the way he just would do that that nobody else can get. You can't get that same sound with alternate picking. That that sort of first track, Church Street Blues itself, is the perfect example of that. If you can you can pick something pretty similar with alternate picking, but the rhythms and the little sort of inner movement of that is entirely down to the way he picks it, isn't it? It totally is. I mean, I made a few notes here. First note was perfect. Second note was cross-picking all over the place. Next is the word relaxed. Next is there's a folkiness to it. It's not driving like so many bluegrass people think bluegrass has to have drive. It doesn't have drive in that same way. You have this incredibly intimate, close-miked studio sound in tune with a capital, all capitals with an exclamation point, never overplaying. There's a way that the groove floats in his hand where he's not having to over-coax the groove. He's barely touching the groove. It's actually floating by itself. And it's very far from metronomic. It's elastic. I like what he said. Uh, he talked about Todd Phillips talking about the drive in bluegrass having a feeling of a train. But it's also got something inside of it. If you picture a drunk hobo inside the boxcar kind of wobbling around. <laughs> yes, the train is going metronomically down the tracks, but there's this other thing internally that has a sway to it. Yeah, it's um, and it feels so completely relaxed, as you say, and completely, oh. completely as it should be. That the the, compl- the complexities of it sort of pass you by initially because it just feels like every beat is exactly where it's supposed to be. And so, yeah, that's it. It doesn't have any of that feeling of anxiousness that we so much associate with bluegrass when we think of it as drive. Yeah, I guess he was one of the first. I mean, he's coming from a, a tradition of of the Washington, especially around the DC area, where bluegrass musicians were were kind of starting to do cover tunes, for instance, of folk songs or or even pop songs. So the you know he's coming from that legacy of the the seldom scene and the country gentleman, where there was a softness starting to appear in the music and an appreciation for whether it's Joni Mitchell or Paul Simon or James Taylor. And and so he's tapping into that kind of um, relaxed gentleness um, and applying it to a, a deep traditional bluegrass background. Yeah, and that rhythmic thing... Um... I was talking to Chris Eldridge about this when I spoke to him and we we were sort of making the comparison between like a rock drummer who does kind of, you know, bass drum, snare drum, bass drum, snare drum, and a jazz drummer who floats with like a Mm. right hand and then a left foot and everything else is sort of commenting and accenting. And Tony feels much more like that as a rhythm player than a sort of like the way Doc Watson would play rhythm, for example, which is much straighter. Well, certainly we know how much Tony listened to jazz recordings and how much he loved jazz, especially drummers, bass players. Um, 
So there's no doubt that that's found its way into his right hand in a very deep way. I mean, we used to play together, and we had a band called Ukanim, which was a kind of the bad boys of the David Grisman Quintet, sort of skipping class and going out behind this the school and 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 poking fun and pushing at the boundaries of what uh, may have been allowed in David Grisman's band at the time. Uh, so we were experimenting with all of that stuff, all those very outside rhythmic syncopations, as far out as we could get, uh, crossing the groove against each other. It would be Todd, Daryl, Tony, and I, and uh, we called it Zeke Booba. <laughs> Zeke Booba. Uh, just sort of pineapple upside downing the stuff to death, you know. Um, and seeing if we could still stay in that groove, you know, and not lose a beat, no matter what somebody was putting across it. And that's the fascinating thing about Chair Street Blues, is because all Tony, apart from the tracks Wyatt plays on, all Tony has to respond to is sort of himself and the song. There aren't other musicians, these, but he still manages to, it's still very reactive, live playing. Well, that's that's true, and it, it's something that I kept uh, commenting on in my in my um, in my notes after, while listening to it was that here he is playing alone, and he's got to maintain a certain stability to everything. If you just check out his his low notes on the guitar, I mean, throughout the whole record, he's hitting downbeats pretty much root fifth you know, very strongly, because I think he's aware, you know, that the listener needs that to hold on to. You know, here I am playing alone. i got to be the bass player, probably first. And then I'm going to try to fit this other stuff in and around that. But I'm not as free as I would be if I were playing in a bluegrass band. You know, I wouldn't have to be hitting those, those downbeats quite as consistently, because there is a bass player. So he's covering that, and yet he's um, and yet he still is free <laughs> uh, with the other parts of the upper strings. You know, um, that, that's pretty remarkable. How I mean, if I if I look at my notes on say Streets of London, well, there's a few things that jump out. If I could change subjects here, I, I go to. There's an honesty in how he's singing, almost naivete thing, but it's never overly sentimental or cloying. You know, he's giving us his heart full on, but it's not... I really feel like we get inside of Tony on this record in a way that you would never get um, with the Bluegrass album band, for instance. Yeah, and for somebody like me who didn't see him play live and didn't sit next to him and hear him in the way that you did, it's the, the most complete chance to feel like you're sitting in a room with Tony Rice playing guitar and singing you a song. And I yeah. think that's part of the magic for most people. Yeah, it's this, he's very calm in himself in a very centered way, which is really odd because... In reality, he wasn't like that at all. He was a 
bundle of nerves. He was extremely uncomfortable around people, you know, and really hard on himself in recording sessions uh, in trying to attain perfection. So that created a kind of tension in his in his music making. And yet on this album, you don't you don't feel any of that. I mean, most of his records, he somehow overcomes that. And and in this record in particular, it shines a light on on how relaxed and and calming the, the sound is that he's creating. Which is very interesting, <laughs> coming from somebody who was kind of a wreck. Yeah, Tim Stafford and Wyatt both sort of said that around the time he was recording this record, he was particularly suffering with anxiety and agoraphobia. And wow. uh, you listen to how relaxed it sounds and how assured and how completely settled as a musical performance that record is. It's astonishing. Well, perhaps, you know, playing the guitar and singing was the one place where he could control everything. And it, it was the one place where he felt at ease. Um, it, it could be that. I don't know. I mean, I I like what Tony says when people are trying to ask him about why something is so great, you know. And, and he just says, you know, when it comes to music, there are some things that are just mysterious that we'll never understand. And certainly him as a musician and his playing and the way he played rhythm, it occupies that territory for me, you know. You cannot dissect it down and figure it out. You know, if somebody transcribes the entire guitar part on Church Street Blues, you can watch the video of them so you can match those pick direction things that he's doing. You know, it's still not going to sound like Tony Rice. You know, no way, right? Yeah, and it is that, um, it's this interesting point that maybe that because uh, perfection is a word that crops up again and again when people talk about Tony in all aspects of his life and just attention to detail. And if that's, I guess sometimes if you could explain what you do and you could totally pin it down and dissect it for people, maybe you wouldn't need to do it. And that's part of the compulsion with people is it's a way of, ex- a way of expressing something. There isn't another way to express. There you go. Could be that. I have a note here to for folks to listen to the high strings above the melody lines when he's playing the guitar. He's just barely touching them while playing all this other shit below on the low strings. It's absolute magic. He's just barely touching the high strings. Most of the solos occurring on the lower strings. But just by hearing those tiny bits of, they're just like little sparkles. Ugh. And he never kills the, the endings of, of the songs. There's always this gentleness to the last chord. Gorgeous. It's really interesting what you were saying before about that sort of Washington, D.C. scene and the sort of bringing some softness to the music because mm. there are also quite a few major key songs on this record. They're not all sort of hard driving kind of flat seven type feels with things like one more night and church street blues and streets of London. There's, you yeah, know, there's House a, Carpenter. Yeah. It's there's, a, there's a, it, 
it's a softness, a gentleness, an understanding that you're you're trying to relay a story. You know, it's a real folk tradition of telling this, telling the story in the song. He seemed to really understand that, and he chose material with a message. You know, we we focus on his guitar playing a lot, but he picked really cool songs. You know. It reminds me of J.D. Crow talking about when they were playing in Lexington every night, they'd get home at midnight or one in the morning and then stay up till five in the morning because all Tony wanted to do was like either jam all night or put on all kinds of records and listening to all, all kinds of music, pop music and, and, uh, and folk music and probably just appreciating, like looking for material, I guess they were doing. It's a, it's a layer of this record that um, sort of hadn't really occurred to me until I started talking to people about this record. Because obviously you listen to it and the singing is astonishing and the playing is astonishing and the sound of it is astonishing. But I hadn't thought about this sort of song choice. And that in itself is a fascinating like angle to approach this record from because the you know Tony is not known as a songwriter. He's written some stuff, some tunes and things, but he's not a writer yeah. as much as a a kind of accumulator of songs um, in the way that Del McCory or Doc Watson do so well. And it's, it's just fascinating to hear what he puts together as a little journey for you. Yeah, especially somebody who's such a good guitar player. It's rare that they would be so attuned to that part of music making. You know, it's just the unusually deep cat uh, with, a, with a broader goal than just being a flat picker. Um. You just never get the feeling, even though everybody's jaws are on the floor to the guitar playing, you just didn't get the feeling that he's doing it for that reason. You know, <laughs> uh, It's, yeah, so anyway, yeah, the, the material, choice of material was really great, and he, he knows how to deliver a message. Also, I have a note here that he knew how to pitch songs for his voice. You know, there's very few real high things on this record, high singing, you know. But last thing on my mind has a few parts where he has to go to that really high part of his voice. And I love it. And I'm guessing it's very intentional. You know, he knows his range and he knows what kind of emotional thing he wants out of a song and he probably knows when he needs uh, a wider range of material for an overall record. You know? But these high parts of his singing, especially in last thing on my mind, it's almost, I remember thinking this way about the record with Ricky Skaggs. When you listen to that thing with headphones and he hits those high notes, it's like wood cracking. There's some other harmonic that appears in that part of his vocal range where it's like, oh, God, what is that sound? It's like a pop. Very interesting. There's a, there's a note in One More Night, I feel, is the same way as well. And you get the sort of, it opens with what is nominally the chorus. I'm not exactly sure what the structure of that song pans out as if you write it out. But then there's that, that second section that it goes to. And the first note of that is yeah. pretty up there. And it I, just I, sort of just rings out doesn't it yeah and it also creates a little bit of tension you know which this record doesn't have much of but that that's the part I, I have a note here some tunes needed that you know so he knew to pick 
keys that would push him into that range. Yeah, it's interesting. You're, you're totally right. That sort of relaxed quality of this record, the way he introduces tension. So there's bits like House Carpenter, the tension comes from this sort of unresolved chord that goes all the way through it. Mm-hmm. That is just a suspended thing throughout. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a kind of tension. It's a gentle sort of tension, but it's also tension. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's getting into his jazz side of things, you know. I haven't gone back and listened to the original of that, but I don't think it had that chord in it, right? <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, that you you were talking about how Tony sang those songs, and it's pretty unadorned. There's not, you know, much sliding around or much kind of embellishment. It's just a voice coming at you, pretty honestly. <laughs> yeah. um, he doesn't force the storytelling. He doesn't tell you how to... Some, some singers says... sing in a way that... He never says, check out how I'm singing this. Yeah. You know, it's, it's never really about him in that way that some singers are always doing the tricks or doing some slidey thing or getting some gravel going or whatever it would be. It's, it's very me-centric for some singers. Um, there's a kind of humility to the song that he carries that reminds me of people who are really great at playing Bach would be sensitive to, you know, it's a little bit of just play the notes, you know, don't, don't try and teach us anything about how great you are. The the composer's wonderful. All you have to do is get out of the way. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because so much music, particularly popular music. Now people are very keen for you to know how good they are. Mm. They're telling you, they're, they're showing mm. you, they're signposting the goodness in their singing. Mm. When you don't need, you don't need it. Mm-hmm. If it's good, you'll notice it. <laughs> exactly. Well, Tim O'Brien certainly has that quality of just, oh, you're just sucked right into the song when he opens his mouth. Um, and and you know he was inspired by Tony a lot. Um. So yeah, no no pyrotechnics. Although to do what he's doing is incredibly pyrotechnical and full of fire, and you could get burned. It's like he's walking on a tightrope the whole time uh, and doing the impossible. Uh, those of us who attempt it know just how difficult it is. My next guest on this episode is Alison Krauss, who I can't imagine needs much introduction for most of you. Um, Alison spent some time playing with Tony, and Tony spent some time playing on Alison's band as well. Um, and we chat a little bit about that and about the record. Uh, and yeah, just a, you know, such a such an interesting conversation, and such a just talking to somebody who Tony and Tony's music clearly means so much to um, was yeah was an honor. Uh, here comes Alison Kreis. I, you know, uh, when I would listen to Tony's records, you have an idea of who you think that person is, you know? Um, and, uh, the character that comes to your mind, you know, I was, you know, 12, 13 when I first was hearing his music for the first time. And, and I grew up with, uh, playing with two very good songwriters that were in the same band, John Pinnell and Nelson Mandrell. And so in that process of 
you know, being around when they were agonizing, not Nelson as much, but John very much agonizing over his, uh, you know, word choices. And when I mean agonizing, I mean the deliberateness of it and the passion in having something uh, be said so distinctively and so... um, agonizing maybe is a good word for it but not in the negative sense but in the in a perfectionist sense or someone striving for something excellent um you know his he and i would drive around and listen to tony's records and when someone chooses a song you know just like tony was so uh, connected to gordon lightfoot you know, that personality that those songs had with him, then, you know, it produced a, a, a character you think you know. And um, I, I think the there's such a romantic part of, of your whole uh, presentation that comes from what words you choose to say that come out of your mouth, you know, when you're singing, that it's um, lyrically... It's so important. Even a lot of people don't even listen to lyrics, but I, I think it, it gets it can't help but get in there. So, um, and I'm not a songwriter. I may do a little bit of editing or make some suggestions on a title, of some or a subject, you know, to people that I've worked with a long time. But um, I'm fascinated by that gift. I've always been. I think it's uh, uh, as powerful as is any gift on earth, really, that ability to put uh, poetry and melody together that change somebody's uh, whole state of mind after it's turned off. So I think Tony, for me, and so many thousands of people, that character that we saw him as being so heroic and romantic at the same time, uh, there's just no match for it. And then to combine it with how he presented himself, I there's just nothing like it to me. Nothing, no, no. Uh, and how he sequenced his songs, you know, and it's funny because you think, you think you know what somebody's doing and, and the intent that they have behind it. I, I didn't get to talk too much to him about all of that. You know, through the years, you don't sit down and go, you know, what was your intent? You know, you don't get a chance to do that. And I think his stuff was probably much more off the cuff than I realized. But um, it is sure. Uh, I, I don't even like to get the records out too many times later in life because I don't want to lose the feeling they gave me. You know, when you hear something again, I I have to choose carefully so I don't mix my feelings up with now. I want to have those old feelings connected to those records, if that makes sense. You know, I want it to take me back. So I, uh, I save it. It's interesting, isn't it? That makes any sense. No, totally. I think when you hear a record can have a massive, like really profound effect on how that record affects you, the time of your life and what your circumstances are. And particularly with lyrics, like, you know, you say a lot of people don't listen to lyrics, but if you do, the lyrical content of a song could hit you like a, like a truck on a particular day when you feel a certain way. And maybe five years before you wouldn't have felt that way about it. And, you know, even though you may not necessarily be listening to what 
the lyrics are. It doesn't make it any less true. You know, it's still true whether or not someone's paying attention or could recite it back. Yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things about Church Street Blues because it does have some fiddle tunes on it, but it is very much a selection of singer-songwriter kind of material um, at a time where Tony was sort of largely known as somebody who played in band contexts. And it's it's that ability to hear Tony just sit there with a the guitar that makes Church Street Blues really magical. Yeah, him being so exposed. Though I heard that record later after um, I, I first heard the Bluegrass Album Band stuff, and that's what uh, my friend John Pinnell uh, would play and gave me tapes of. He'd make cassettes and stuff. And Church Street Blues I heard later. So to hear him so exposed and to see those, uh, you've seen, I'm sure, the guitar lesson, I think it was on Homespun. Yeah. Where he played. Tunes like that, and you know, he was just such a mystery to us. And then to have him so exposed and him become more mysterious is, um, I think, I think there was as much uh, wondering who he was as there was trying to figure out who he was. You liked, <laughs> you know, you liked wondering just as much. Yeah, maybe that's the appeal of that record is because it is largely just Tony. Like you you get a bit more of a and because he you know obviously I didn't know Tony but that so many people talk about him as being a little bit elusive and a bit hard to reach and so it's such an exposed record it, like it makes you really want to lean in and listen to what he's telling you because you can hear all of it yeah and I think there's something look that record the singing is as good as on like on anything he's done and you really get to hear that as well yeah it's it's beautiful i i love house carpenter and i loved ed edmund fitzgerald and now his singing you couldn't uh couldn't tell where he was from and no one sounded like him i mean I, i've heard you know nate bray from the the bray brothers he did favor his voice to me i i thought some, but you know, no one could really grasp that. And I guess that's where, you know, those songs come in. And it, it, it's, uh, I, I don't know if anybody, I've had conversations hours and hours about what uh, we thought Tony was or how he might have thought about something. And um, I just recently found um, him talking on a, at a workshop in 1986. And do you know what I'm talking about? Isn't, yeah. From the Strawberry yeah, Festival? Yeah. Yes. That's the most I'd ever heard him. This is just like last week. And uh, I'd never seen this of him talking about music and playing. And I mean, it was fascinating. And I wrote John Pennell. I'm like, you got to watch this thing of him talking, you know, about, <laughs> you know, unfolding his whole thought process, which I, um, I never got to hear too much about it. And it just seems very natural. Then, then at times he, he seemed to be more deliberate in what he was talking about. It, it's hard. I always have ma imagined what those studio sessions were like, and I really have no idea. And then if I found out, I don't know if I'd want to give up my <laughs> my thoughts on what I thought it was like. 
It's funny, isn't it? You, you like, like you said at the beginning, you sort of build a picture based on all of this, and it, it obviously is true because if somebody is an artist and they're communicating themselves to you, like the picture you have is correct, but it's also from a particular angle that may, you know. And then if you see a different light shone on it from another angle, it's it's a different thing entirely, and we can get quite protective right. over our pictures of people that we, whose music we <laughs> That's love. That's right. I, it whatever my picture is, you know, it may or may not be true, but I sure like it. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting you I saying. Really like it. <laughs> yeah, and it, well, and I think Tony provokes that in people more than most do, and maybe it's partly the elusiveness. But I think there's something about um, the way he expressed it in everything. So, like the music was very, very deliberately thought about and detailed and intricate. But so was the fashion and his choice in cars and watches. And like, it seems like everything that he did. If he decided something was worth doing, it was worth doing. Yeah, I would think someone that particular isn't only going to be particular in one area. Usually they got all kinds of stuff, you know, that they're pretty specific about. But uh yeah, I I I didn't I didn't know him know him. You know, just he was very uh I I did I played with him some in the uh late eighties and was around him a bit then but he was you know uh pretty to himself then as well yeah and i think that's that's why people love church street blues because it, it's the nearest you can get to feeling like you're sitting in a room with tony just playing a guitar for you it's it still has yeah. that you know i do listen to it regularly um I, it's not been in my life for for that long a few years really and so to sit there and put the headphones on and just get lost in it like you'll stand next to somebody telling you a story. It's a beautiful thing. Stunning. And after chatting a bit about the record, we also went on to talk about a couple of times Alison got to spend some time one-on-one with Tony and, and how that was. So here's Alison talking about the time she spent with Tony. Well, a, a, well, a number of years ago, first in the 80s, um, I uh, had a permit, and uh, a driver's permit, and I didn't have a driver's license yet. And we had played in Baltimore, but we were all staying in uh, Washington, D.C. And so he's like, Krause, you drive. Mm. I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, I got a permit. Yeah. So I drove him back to the ho- you know hotel where we all were in D.C. And on that way back, he played, um, you know, Benny Goodman and... Uh, Who's the guitar player? Um, But he played another few bits of music that he loved. And he's like, listen to that. You know, listen to that. Listen to that. And I'm like, you know, (laughs) more scared of driving. And uh, and that was just kind of a, uh, you know, cool experience to get to talk or hear what he liked, you know, in any way about anything. Because I always used to wonder, I wonder what he listens to when he's, you know, you don't know what someone likes. And um and then years later, and I think it was 2005, we did a tour with Tony, our band, and and uh, and we did all his songs because he had been doing that, having different people come sing the leads on stuff. So he did a tour with Union Station, and we did all that. And and Jerry says to me, he goes, "There's two tickets to the symphony. Go get Tony and take him to the symphony." And I'm like, I don't want to. <laughs> He's like, get, take him to the symphony. And so 
uh, you know, and at this point, I can't remember how old I am, you know, late 30s or whatever. And, and I pull up to the hotel and he's standing out there. He goes, hey, you remember the last time you drove me? <laughs> you remember the last time you drove me? <laughs> and I'm like, I do. I was hoping you might have forgotten. But uh, but we did. We drove to um, the symphony and he talked about uh, the guitar and not singing anymore and what that was like. And, um, you know, just that that's probably only like those two times or the times I had any kind of private conversation where, you know, he shared what he thought about playing and what he felt about what he heard and just about his own things. It was really magical. I'll, I'll never uh, forget those bits because it was, um, you know, a special time, even if it was for one time, maybe a little longer driving the car there, but uh, another 10 minutes to the <laughs> to the symphony. It's special to hear somebody you admire so much, even to say they like something. And uh, while we were in the at the, the symphony hall, it was Edgar Meyer and a really beautiful piano player. And there was one moment that they were playing, and I remember it was so stunning. I held my breath, <gasps> you know, like it took my breath away. And at the same time, he goes hmm. like this one. Oh my gosh, I like something at the same time. You know, whatever. It's uh. Silliness, but but real. <laughs> was proud of myself for liking something at the same time. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> it was a moment. It's funny how many people talk, like Chris Eldridge talks about spending time with Tony when he was at college and not really ever picking a guitar up, just talking about things and listening to things and that being more important than where you put you. So you're talking about him about Tony sort of talking at the the festival in that workshop. And he's this I would rewatch the homespun videos and they're great. They you can just sit and watch them. You don't need to even pick your guitar up. They're just fascinating documents. But you can sort of see that he sort of struggles sometimes to talk about what he does. And Happy's sort of saying to him, Can you play that a bit slower so we can see what you're doing? And he's sort of gone you can almost see him wanting to say, I don't really know how I do that. I just do. I've that's how I fix that problem. And it's like it's just it, that's in my fingers. I don't know, and it's it's elusive stuff. And so those moments where you do hear him talk about it and sort of find the words and find a way of they're they're really magical. Yeah, any look into that character is pretty fascinating because yeah. there's, there's not a very book, not a very uh, it's not an open door really. Is there? No, and that makes you want to lean in even more, doesn't it? I think any kind of any kind of personality or art that doesn't just run up to you and kind of introduce itself that makes you lean in and step in and do a bit of work and you know they they're always a little bit more intriguing yeah i always always found you know uh he's one of those people and the records you end up with more questions at the end of it you know and uh you just want to you want to understand more and you you don't get to and when, you know, he passed, it was, you know, there was so much hope for so many people that he might sing and play again on some regular basis. And that was a really hard blow to know that was over. It really was devastating. 
like that that hope was was gone yeah and i think that's the thing with any kind of artist who passes suddenly or before you expect them to it's just the loss of the art because most of us don't know the human like i obviously Mm. never met tony rice and never would have done but just to know there's no more music coming when the music is so precious and yeah no more music coming but then everybody was just i felt like always rooting for him to to be able to heal his voice and that someday it was going to come out again. Mm. And one of the, I think one of the beautiful things that did happen after he passed was just the outpouring of celebration of what there was and what we did have and what we did know. And the just so much kind of celebration of the music and of Tony. And it was sort of quite overwhelming and it felt like, as somebody who is outside of that community and just it sort of felt like it included everybody. It sort of, I don't know how to describe it, but it felt like some doors were just opened and anybody was invited in who wanted to be part of that. Yeah. And I, he seemed like in later years became, uh, you know, quite generous with himself and new players and, he uh, he did take on a much more uh, enveloping. I guess is that the right word? Enveloping role, whatever. What's is that the right uh, inclusive role with people? Seemed like he 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 seemed to get more outgoing in later years. Yeah. So it's fascinating. It's, it's, I mean, just the whole. I think that's why doing things like this is so interesting because. Everybody has questions. Everybody sort of like I, I I started this process feeling like I was talking to the people who knew the answers. And actually, I'm just talking to people who have some other questions <laughs> you know that don't have the answers either. <laughs> so that everybody's got a question. Everybody's like, you know, feels like they didn't know him as well as they would have liked to or didn't get to spend as much time as they would have liked to. And, you know, it's um, it's been a, a, a joy and an honor to talk to people about him, really. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. My next guest is Brian Sutton, who is, you know, like a, a absolute authority on all things bluegrass guitar related, but also a huge Tony Rice fan, and um, you know has has taken Tony's spot in some of those instances where Tony couldn't tour with Bella Fleck, for example, or when Bella's wanted a rhythm guitar player since, and he's maybe got a unique position to appreciate some of this, but he's also just a passionate Tony Rice fan and an all-round lovely guy and uh, full of insight and just a treat to talk to, as always. Here's Brian Sutton. Well, you know, for me, even as a guy that was, I was fortunate to be around Tony and also continue to be around a lot of people that played with Tony, but yet Church Street Blues as kind of this, you know, more solo effort. I mean, Wyatt played on a couple of tracks and I had a good chance to talk with him last year about some of that. But, you know, as as kind of a fan and kind of guitar nerd and Tony Rice you know, uh, die hard, you know, I've always asked the questions of JD Crow and Doyle Lawson and Todd Phillips about the bluegrass album band or Bela Fleck about the cold on the shoulder record or Sam Bush about the Manzanita record and, and, and gotten lots of great, you know, just questions answered and, and information about that kind of stuff. But church street blues, you know, as 
again, kind of this island of just <laughs> solo playing as far as the other recordings that it, it, you know, I tend to remain just as much of a fan as anything. And I, when I was around Tony, I, I tended to not inquire so much about things like that. You know, I just didn't want to sort of push that too much of that around him personally of just trying to say, okay, I'm around you, leave me all this, all this, you know, information, even though I wanted to kind of germ as much as I could. But anyway, all that to say, yeah, I mean, it just church street blues for me kind of remains as, you know, this sort of go-to kind of source for who Tony Rice was as a musician. Again, not, not just a player, but a singer, kind of a song interpreter um, and arranger, you know, just to hear one, one human do so much, you know, create so much of a musical, a, a musical sort of uh, completeness. That's what I, I'm always been drawn to musicians that just with their own, whatever they can do in, in, in one setting, you know, stand with an instrument, sing, whatever it is. Uh, but for me, at least I don't miss, I don't miss Sam Bush or Jared Douglas or any of these other people on that record. It's amazing. I guess all that to say how to, within the whole scope of Tony's recorded work, how that continues to be like the strongest thing, not, not just, Oh, there's this little side project he did on his own. I mean, it is, it is as strong as, as Manzanita or any of the other, you know, full band works. And again, I think for most bluegrassers, it is more about the ensemble and we all kind of play solo less. And so I think the mystery of that, again, the strength of it, when I say, you know, it's a source that I go to to like, you know, again, how can I be motivated to kind of find my own version of that on occasion? And, and, um, again, just, just, I, I find myself going to it when, when Tony passed away, it was the first thing I listened to, uh, just because it feels like so much of that core essence of, of who he was. And it's it's a remarkable thing because, you know, I, most of the people I've talked to about Tony over the past couple of years have talked about Tony as a reactive musician, as a listener, as a responder mm. to what the people were doing. And on that record, apart from, as you say, a few bits with Wyatt, there's nobody there to respond to. And what you hear yeah, is true. such a, like an extraordinary sound, particularly on tracks like Church Street Blues or Streets of London or, or One More Night, where Tony's playing this mixture of rhythm and melody and just a complete... It's it's wizardry almost. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've I've known. I guess I never thought about it in that particular context. But yeah, like he would never even talk about rhythm guitar a lot of times, just because you know it's like it depends on what JD does. That's that's what I do is listen and react and and uh, and, and and yeah. I mean, it's 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 neat to think of him kind of composing these arrangements and and. And using the instrument kind of as the complete band, and and uh, I wonder how much of a challenge it was for him, you know, uh, as as such a reaction based kind of musician. Um, but again, because he did it, <laughs> it it uh, a guy like me can come along and say, yes, it can be done. And uh, I mean, he wasn't the first, you know, solo guitar player singer, but but just the way he did it with with such intricacy and power and, and, and fullness, you know, like he didn't just, he didn't just sort of back into, I'll just strum along behind this, behind this lyric, you know, it was, mm. it was so, uh, so deep, <laughs> so deep what he was doing. 
And maybe what we're hearing there is just Tony in the absence of other people to react to, just reacting to the song, reacting to the lyric. And that's what he's interacting with rather than people. Because the setting of those songs, the choice of the songs, but also the setting of the songs is remarkable. Yeah, it truly is. You know, I think Tony, uh, you know, even to the day he died, would listen to lots of singers, lots of songwriters. Again, you know, he cut a lot of Gordon Lightfoot songs, Bob Dylan, Randy Newman, uh, you know, Ian Tyson. And, you know, he, as deep as he was, as any of us are kind of as, you know, guitar players and, and studiers of one thing or another guitar based, you know, uh, that's another layer for, for me, especially as a session musician that I've uh, really gleaned from Tony, just that here's, here's listening to a song, here's backing a singer, um, and how to really, you know, support, support, at least to your interpretation, um, how to, how to really support the song, not, not shy away from it or feel like I just need to kind of, um, you know, get out of the way of it, but really kind of engage with it. You know, I think that's what he does with his guitar and all those, all those songs on church street blues is really want, you know, weave the guitar into the emotional aspect of the tune. Um, and then certainly just his capacity to, to do that, to pull all that off, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like a feat of, of humanity to, you know, his church street blues playing is something that's, you know, it's still this high watermark for people that can even come close to kind of reproducing it. Yeah. I remember quite strongly sort of sitting down and watching it and sort of being able to understand what was happening on each given note mm -hmm. and thinking that was enough to be able to then sit down and start to attempt <laughs> to play it. And there's just nothing it is, you know, it's understanding what he is doing and having any concept of being able to replicate that are two entirely different things. Yeah. And I love too, just as, as you say that, I mean, in thinking about again, his time with JD Crow and, and, uh, and as down the pike kind of hardcore bluegrass as he could be. And then you just get this complete sort of 180 side of this, you know, almost kind of classical piano, um, intricacy and, 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 and this rolling supportive, uh, sound that's, that's just, I mean, again, it's, it will forever be like in the, uh, in the realm of what's possible on the guitar. It's, it's always going to be a mountain to climb to, to achieve what he, what he did. And, uh, and the fact that it's not, you know, freeborn man or roll in sweet baby's arms or something like that, which again is great, but just, I, I love the fact that he, he has such a, a breadth in his, either abilities on the guitar or again, to, to the human side of it, you know, to the willingness to, to know that again, I, this shouldn't sound like, you know, just boom, chuck strumming and, and it can be intricate. It can be thoughtful and, and deep musically and, and, and just the way those chords wind around. It's just, you know, just that, that's a true inspiration for any of us that kind of come into or come out of bluegrass and, and work into other styles and things like that. And, um, it really, I mean, it's, it, you can't say enough about, again, him as a player, but, but to the, again, the human of it, just as a song interpreter and a, what he was able to figure out, what he was, how he was able to adjust one thing or another. And, and again, with this record, you just get a whole, you know, a whole project based of that. It wasn't just a one-off, it wasn't just the one song. It's, you know, it's, it's different scenes, different feels. And, um, just, I don't know, it's, 
it certainly is, like I say, this complete source continues to be a source every time I listen to it for inspiration and, and kind of centering. Of, that's one of the things I said when he passed away with that. And Man- Manzanita, too, to be honest, it's just like there's this kind of musical compass <laughs> that gets centered when I listen to those records. And we haven't even mentioned the singing in amongst all of that. And the, the singing oh, yeah. is also, you know, like you, just to, as an album of guitar playing, if he played guitar and somebody else had sung, it would still be an extraordinary thing. But to, to yeah. do those two together, because the singing on that album is great as well. Yeah, it's uh, again, as a as a guy that's come into that a little later in in my sort of musical career, that's just another another element of of a challenge for me as as a primary guitar player to again kind of like i was saying earlier not in the interest of singing kind of dumb the guitar down or, or oversimplify it uh, but to really engage deeply with both i think again that's what makes that so special is you get such a a personal again solo performance of great playing and great singing and again i think about uh you know, some of the great, like either jazz pianists that have uh, done similar things with just kind of really checking those boxes in a, in a strong way, vocally and instrumentally at the same time. I also think about, you know, some of my uh, continued favorites in that world, like Daryl Scott, Tim O'Brien, you know, that mm. they're just for, for one musician with an instrument and a voice can create so much music and so much completeness where, you, again, you don't miss any other element. It's all there. It's all you need. Next, we've got Chris Eldridge uh, from Punch Brothers and Mighty Poplar. Um, Chris knew Tony as a kid because Tony was around the seldom seen um, the band that Chris's dad was in. But also Chris, as a student, spent some time with Tony talking about music and having conversations about what it means to be a musician and a guitarist um, and has some just yeah really interesting insights. And again, incredibly warm and generous and just fun to chat to. Um, yeah. Here comes Chris. I don't remember. I don't remember talking to him about that record very much. Um, I what I remember talking to him about was that he had um, he had the idea that he wanted to do the record, and he was on Rounder at the time, and uh, Rounder didn't think that uh, he should do that. You know, he was he was kind of making his you know, instrumental space grass records then. And he, they just had a di- different ideas about what he was going to do. And I presume Tony was fully under contract, but you know, this is where Tony just had such a maverick. Tony was going to do what Tony was going to do. Um, and so he was like, all right, sure. Don't put it out. And he just went to sugar Hill and called them up and said, I want to make this record. Basically Tony, Tony was like, nobody is going to tell me what kind of music I'm going to make. Um, so for whatever reason, he, he, he arrived at this point where that was, he wanted to make that record at that time. Um, and, and it was almost, uh, you know, from a business side, I think it was almost defiant in how he, how he did it. He was just going to do what he was going to do. Um, which is, says something about Tony for sure. Um, you know, I also know that that was a very difficult record for him to make. I think, I think being so exposed, so naked, uh, you know, and having to create the whole musical picture was something that he had to work on a lot. Um, but he, he sure did succeed. Um, you know, as you listen to that, that record, I just, I popped it on and just skipped around a little bit this morning 
just because I knew we were going to be talking just because it had been a little while since I listened to it. And I was, I was struck. Um, I was just struck with how big a lot of the gestures are on that record. You know, we, we, we can, it's so easy to, um, you know, fixate on how accurate and precise Tony is and how complex, you know, the lines are that he plays on the guitar. You know, think about the song Church Street Blues and that. You know, it's really syncopated. There are all these crazy things going on. But but I think if you listen to Church Street Blues, you can also really hear how zoomed out he was. Like you can hear these really big phrases. You hear that he wasn't just operating in this really zoomed in microscopic way. Um, you you can really hear. I think it's a I think it's kind of a masterclass if you choose to look for this stuff in in rendering music and having a big picture you know having having holding both a big picture in mind and kind of a and a focused you know more microscopic picture i think i think that's probably when you know he said it was hard i think that's probably what he was working on was um how do you get not just the guitar playing to sound awesome and the singing to sound awesome um but how do you get like a whole musical world to come through and um, that, that has dimensionality to it. Cause I think that's, to me, that's what, that's why church street blues is such a masterpiece. I mean, it, as a fan of Tony Rice's study it and just trying to learn about how he was doing what he was doing, which is something I'll always be fascinated by. Um, but it's also, it's this record that just stands up as a good record to listen to. Um, and I think if you kind of start asking yourself, why or how that's happening i think i think it's um you know i think it's because he he had a a bigger perspective you know there's a lot of the wisdom of tony tony was such a wise guy wise musician this is something that kind of i always i was so struck by in my time with him my, my big takeaway uh was how wise he was not how good or talented or anything like that my big takeaway was always how wise he was. He's like, he was like, you know, a sage who was like sitting on top of the mountain. Um, and, and we talked a lot from that perspective. He talked to me a lot from that perspective as the guy, like, you know, sitting on top of the mountain. And there was a lot of asking questions about the big picture. So he was very concerned with that sort of thing. And, and I think, I think, uh, I think the Church Street Blues is a is a fascinating listen with that in mind. And it's really interesting that as you're describing that, it's almost like I get a similar sense if I stand in front of one of those big bits of street art that takes up the entire side of a building, but is incredibly detailed. And you think when you're painting like mm. a square foot of that, how do you know what it looks like from 30 feet back? And how are the proportions going to be yeah. right? And how are the lines going to settle, not just across a uh, a phrase or a verse or a song, but a whole record and a whole musical kind of intent across 40 minutes of, you know, and it has that, yeah. like it hangs together as an album. It, it, it begs to be listened to together. Exactly. I, I wonder about that often in that exact same way. I, I, I see, you know, in Nashville, there's some murals, like some big murals and they're so beautiful and detailed. It's like, it's like, how, how are these guys, doing how are they operating on both levels and 
I mean, I mean, I can't, I'm the world's worst visual artist. So that truly boggles my mind. Um, but, you know, I think, I think it's probably the same as music. You just kind of have to remember to do that, that that's part of the, part of the task, you know, as you practice the songs, you record them and you go back and listen to them and you see, is it coming through? Um, you just try and keep that bigger perspective in mind. Um, I mean, even, even I was listening to what song was it? Um, this last thing on my mind, uh, earlier today, I just kind of dropped a needle on that one. And I was just struck with how big the, the, the beats were like the, they're, they're these kind of big phrases and how he's playing it on guitar. You hear these, in the guitar playing like or just the, the big musical phrases wind up being a lot bigger there's so much little stuff happening in there um but the the big phrases kind of have these beautiful turns in them as well um it's just it's really cool it's it's just so easy to lose sight of that i mean i think that's kind of what i mean about the wisdom the, tony was so so wise and 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 i think if you listen to some of this music with that in mind you can kind of hear that he was remembering the big picture yeah and when you're responsible for singing and playing the guitar and nobody else is doing anything and the arrangements are as complicated as church street blues or whatever in terms of technical stuff that's going on to to be zoomed out enough to trust all that's going to happen and still deliver a performance is like that's you know about as good as it gets yeah yeah but you know i mean i think i think with any of that stuff you you kind of just you just work on it you keep working on it and then you just you keep working on it and at a certain point you just turn it over and you just trust that it's going to be there um you know it's it's mysterious and it's not mysterious all at the same time it's like you can marvel at somebody doing that but but uh you know i feel like anybody who's accomplish great things like that um for me as a as a practitioner i i always it's always fun to just remember that like well you know these guys got there by just doing the work you know there's no other way like as, as much as i revere tony for instance he also showed up to where he was by just working really hard and, and just loving it so much staying so committed and keeping you know orienting his priorities and his interests around around that you know making sure he could be that guy he could spend that time on that stuff yeah um, yeah which is I really watching, cool that's another yeah i was with, uh, i was watching some tennis last year and roger federer was playing and the commentator basically said like he makes this thing look effortless but you have no idea how much effort goes into making something look that effortless it's like you know yeah. it's it's the hours and hours and hours of hitting the same shot over and over again and you know, but to, as an outsider yeah. who can't do that, it looks like some sort of magic. And it's, I guess the magic is being the being the kind of creative mind that decides to do it in the first place. That's the magic. And the rest of it is the just teaching your body to do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You go far enough in one direction, you end up in the other. That's right. That's totally right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really interesting because it's one of the words that's cropped up quite a lot when people talk about church street blues has been in the word intimate because it is a very intimate listening experience because you're just hearing Tony and you're hearing all the like little inner workings of what goes on. Um, but also that what you say about the bigger phrases and the bigger arc of it and 
Like, it's really interesting that it has both of those facets. It's intimate and broad at the same time. Yeah, well, I I feel like the, the, the big picture is only something I've come to appreciate recently. Like, I, I feel like the intimate thing, I've always, you know, you're struck by that immediately because you, you don't often get to hear Tony Rice um, so unadorned. You often hear the effect of Tony Rice. Um, in most of his recorded output, he's playing with a band. And, and you know, what a lot of people are so blown away by with Tony um, is how he would how he could affect and shape the music going on around him. It's not just the, you know, him taking great guitar solos. It's just that everybody played their best when they played with Tony, the music that he was a part of, like the, the, when it, when it really, when it was, when the music he was a part of was hitting its stride, all music hits its stride, whatever it is. But when Tony was around and the music hit its stride, it really is like legendary stuff that that's, it, it feels monumental in those moments. And so you know, looking at that, it's like you feel the effect of Tony. Um, but it's often hard in those in those things to to kind of listen through and actually hear. You say like, how's he doing that? You can't always hear the nuances of how his guitar is interacting with the band. A lot of sometimes you can, and it's fun to listen to the any kind of band record with him with that in mind. I mean, but on Church Street Blues, it's like this amazing example. It's like everybody's like, oh, okay, finally I'm going to get to hear like how he's doing it all. Um, and it really is cool to hear, hear him play rhythm guitar on there and hear how how little he's actually playing, you know, so much of the time. Um, you know, there aren't, a, there's not a lot of strumming on that record. You know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of kind of bass lines that dance and little phrases that'll dance kind of, but it's always in dialogue with the vocal. Um, it's not just like, don't jaga, don't jaga, don't jaga, don't. Um, you know, it's, you, you kind of get this, this interesting, um, yeah, inner look that you just can't see this view. You can't usually see of kind of the relationship between his singing and the songs and his guitar playing that's just so fascinating mm -hmm. and that thing you talk about about the like playing very little and almost just playing bass lines at points and it's it's a bit more like a jazz approach to playing a drum kit than a rock approach to playing a kit where like with jazz you've got the ride cymbal and the hi-hat going all the time and then everything else comes in between phrases to comment or accent or it's like you know the strums with tony are often only there between phrases as like a little bit of punctuation or a you know it's not there all the time. He's not driving his way through all of it. And it's great to be able to just hear that sometimes and, and notice it. Totally. You, still, you know it's there, but when you listen to a five-piece band where everybody's playing incredibly, some of that goes under the radar a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the Tony Rice Jedi mind trick. You know, he, he, trust his, he trusted his listeners to kind of fill in some of the gaps. He didn't feel like he needed to, he needed to show you where every single thing was. Like there was a thread he had, he was connected to that thread. He stayed connected to it. Didn't need to spell it all out for you. And he did that in such a powerful committed way that you as the listener find that thread too, without even realizing, realizing you're doing it. And you, you can, you can fill in the gaps. You don't need him to hit every single subdivision. You don't need him to hit every single strum. It is interesting. I mean, I love the, the, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think it's pretty apt the comparison between like rock and roll, which is, 
you know, in the most beautiful way, because I love rock and roll, just so boneheaded. It's like, you're going to, like, the rhythm's going to kind of hit you there. Duck, 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 And, and, uh, and, you know, versus the jazz thing where it just floats and, and everybody's kind of in this land of, uh, or, I don't know, it's like you're on the ocean or something. It's just all a little bit suspended, but you're moving forward. And I also asked Chris the question about uh, first hearing this record because unlike some of the people I've interviewed, he wasn't around when the record came out and wouldn't have remembered the release. He'd have been, you know, a year old or so. Um, so, yeah, I asked him, you know, when he first became aware of Church Street Blues. Yeah, I'm, I'm an 82 model myself. But it was definitely, that record was definitely in my house a lot. You know, my mom, my mom is, you know, the world's biggest Tony Rice fan. Um, I mean, she just loved that music so much and, and loved Tony's thing so much, like a lot of people. Um, and, you know, she's not a flat picker. She just, Tony just, his heart was there. And uh, so, so that was a record we, we definitely listened to when I was a kid. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'd, I'd encourage people to find it on vinyl and try and listen to it and all of Tony's records. Let's find it on vinyl. It sounds so much better than the digital transfers. There's a lot of music that sounds better on digital. I feel like the vast majority of music made today, uh, if it's recorded digitally, it's almost always going to sound better digitally. I certainly feel that way about all the music I've ever made. It's gone on a record. Like the digital copy sounds better. But the with music that was recorded back in the day, it's the opposite. It's like to hear this stuff on vinyl, um, is really the way it's meant to be heard. Um, so for anybody out there who's got a turntable and I mean, gosh, at this point, a hundred dollars to spend on eBay. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, I guess, I guess I'm saying that and it's, it's I'm realizing like, it's hard to find those things now, but, but it really is worth, you know, hearing, uh, hearing on vinyl. I think, I don't know if it was you who said this, but some, I remember somebody's telling me at some point that, um, that Tony would, urge people to find the vinyl as well because he wasn't particularly happy with some of the transfers to cd that he didn't think they'd be done particularly thoughtfully i didn't realize that they i mean i just grew up listening to the cds um well i guess i had some tapes when i was a kid you know i had like me and my guitar on cassette um you know i remember but but yeah like when i was kind of getting into it i had all this stuff on cd and it was actually when i was down at his house he was like have you ever heard this stuff on vinyl uh, he wasn't a big fan of playing his own music. You know, he wasn't like there to toot his own horn. But but I think he did want me to know about that. So I remember he put on uh, acoustics. He, he he pulled out his record acoustics and put that on the vinyl. And it was like, and I I knew that record inside and out. I mean, I knew every note that everybody played on it. I'd listened to it a lot. And it was like hearing it for the first time, you know, hear, hearing it on vinyl. He also had a great system, but that was... Uh, it, it was interesting. I know I may have told you this little story before, but apparently when they got, when they heard the digital, uh, he and Billy Wolf heard the digital, uh, you know, master of cold on the shoulder. It was so bad to their ears that they just, they laughed. They weren't even upset. They were just like, it, it was so far off of what they you know, had intended it to be and what it was kind of on the vinyl, just really thin. And um, so, yeah, for people who, who haven't heard 
who haven't heard like the original versions as they actually made them and oversaw them because they didn't oversee uh, with, with a couple of rare exceptions where Billy remastered some of that stuff. They didn't oversee any of the digital transfers. It was just rounder sent it all off to, uh, re, you know, I think there was a, some mastering house in Japan that just kind of would, they'd send them off and, and they just kind of process these things. And that's what we all grew up with, and which was which is great. It doesn't take anything away from the music. It's just there's a it's a beautiful experience uh, awaiting people uh, who haven't heard the other versions. Well, my last guest in this episode is Caroline Wright, who co-wrote uh, "Still Inside" the Tony Rice story with Tim Stafford, and she spent some time on the road with Tony, sort of preparing for that. Um, I'm so glad I got to talk to Caroline. We had four attempts at it. One, I messed up the time zones. Caroline's in Hawaii. I'm in London. Um, the clocks changed and my brain couldn't cope second time Caroline was busy had to cancel third time we thought we got it nailed and then we had some tech problems Um, and the fourth time we finally managed it I'm so glad we did because it was just a lovely conversation and I think a beautiful um, reflective chat to end this first episode on Uh, yeah it was just a joy to get to talk to her Um, here comes Caroline Wright I don't remember when I first heard it It, I mean because it it all it seems always to have been in been part of my life um as most of tony's music i i grew up listening to tony rice um my my parents were founders of the Adirondack bluegrass league and so i went to festivals uh, from a young age and saw saw tony with jd crow at the corinth bluegrass festival and uh just in a, in a lot of incarnations my mother actually promoted a show with him um, uh, and I just, there was never a time that he, that he wasn't part of my life or his music wasn't part of my life. So, uh, that's my answer. <laughs> it must've been, um, must've been amazing then to sort of finally get to work with Tony on the book. It was, it was definitely, uh, <laughs> Because he'd been part of my life as a child, you know, and then getting to know him as an adult and as a human being, you know, with all his all his flaws and and the miraculous things about him, uh, it, it it was it changed a lot of my of my own thinking about what it must be like to be a working touring bluegrass musician of course because i'd never done anything like that i'd never been on the road with with a musician but it was something i was intrigued about i was intrigued about how how people live when they're off stage and what they do and what their interests are because people who play bluegrass as as tony was they're often i don't know preternaturally talented there's so much talent in this genre so much incredible musical talent in this genre that you know i I find it intriguing uh to learn about their hobbies and their interests because tony and his accutrons i mean good heavens (laughs) I, i mean and so many of his peers obviously have become fascinated and interested in in accutrons but tony was also i mean he was fascinated by particle physics and really he was he was curious about a lot of things as i think so many of his really talented peers are 
you know, so that was one of the things that really hit home with, with me was there's, there's way more layers, way more layers than one might expect, you know? So. Yeah. And, and that sort of getting to spend that sort of time, like in a car, going to a festival or going to a show with him and seeing that sort of quiet time when he's not in the public eye is, mm-hmm. you know, like a, presumably a fascinating experience. It was, it was, we laughed a lot. We laughed a lot. He was, he was funny as hell. He really was. He liked, he liked, <laughs> he liked jokes and he, you know, he knew some salty ones and uh, yeah, he, he just, it was fun to travel with him um, and comfortable. You know, I thought I'd be, I thought I'd be a little uneasier on edge the whole time because, you know, it was a, a strange process. And we, I actually recorded as we drove, um, uh, not all the time, you know, but I did. And, uh, but it was just, it was really easy. You know, we had, we developed a good rapport. Um, and I, I went on the road with him a couple of times, you know, I was in 2003 and then in 2005 and, uh, it was it was really interesting to see how people reacted to him, even if they didn't know exactly who he was. They knew he was somebody, you know, because of because of the way he carried himself. And, you know, he was he was very he was impeccably dressed, even when it was just in jeans. You know, the jeans were creased and the the shirt was a silk shirt and. He was impeccable no matter, no matter what. And, uh, that dignity, the Southern gentleman dignity that he had the old, it was old world. It was not something you see so much anymore, except in a lot of bluegrass musicians. (laughs) They seem to carry that still a lot of them. Yeah. And there's something about that sort of, um, that immaculateness that kind of crosses over into these conversations about church street blues. Cause like one of the, the things people remark about it when we talk about it is just how in place everything is on that record and how, like how perfect it is, even though perfect is not what's great about it. It is perfect. And just so detailed and so incredible a record, but also very, very intimate, you know, very, and for people like me who didn't meet Tony, it feels like that's the closest I'm going to get to spending a bit of time with him. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good observation. Um, it It is intimate. That's a great, that's a great description for that recording. Have you, you must be aware of the new, the new release from acoustic disc with Wyatt and Tony. Yeah. It's very exciting. <laughs> have I you heard any, that, yeah. have you heard any of that? Yeah, and some of the just the the unit records as well that they've mm-hmm. been putting out recently, just they're so good. But yeah, that one where it's just Tony and Wyatt, you don't get to hear that much, and it's no. it's just delightful. No, it really, it really is, it really is. It 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 is a lot like being in the same in the same room. That's a that's a really good description. Yeah, and I'm I I love that recording. Um, Church Street Blues is just you know, I have, I have some friends who do it. I can't listen. I can't listen to that without, without crying a little bit, you know, it's even now it's, it's hard, even, even all this time on it's, it's, 
I mean, this is the first time, the first interview I've done with anybody really about Tony. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's still a little rough. I'm sure it is for a lot of people who cared about him and who cared about his music, you know? Yeah. And just that sense that I get from people that um, even though Tony hadn't been sort of in the public eye or performing, like he, the possibility of that was still there and losing that possibility was one of the things that hit people as much as anything, just that, you know, even though he hadn't been around that much, it was always still a chance that there'd be a new record or some shows or the chance to hear him sing again or play again. And... He always talked about it, you know, Matt, he, he talked about how his heroes, you know, had had resurrections late in life, had risen from the ashes like phoenixes and you know he i think he was always hoping that he could do that too that he could find a way back to do that you know and and how sad for us that he that he never did um i can't remember who wrote it but he was such a perfectionist about his music that i think it pained him very much that he couldn't he couldn't produce the perfection that he'd become known for, you know, or the speed or the, he didn't have that technique in his later years and, and how, how sad for him and for all of us that, you know, maybe he thought that was his worth, you know, that's that nobody would want to hear him slow down or make a mistake. I remember, do you remember the recording that Dan Crary did? I think jammed if I do, he had a, oh, it's no, a bunch no, no, of no. duos. It's a bunch of, of duet recordings with some of his favorite guitar players. And one of them is Tony. And at the beginning he says, Hey, Tony, Hey, Tony, could you do, could you do me one favor when we, when we play this song? And Tony's like, sure. What's that Dan? And, and Dan says, could you just make a mistake? Just one, <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and I think he just, he was, he was worried that he wouldn't find an audience for for what he could offer in his later years. And that's that's too bad because we all would have been there for whatever whatever he could bring to the table. But again, yeah. that that dignity, you know, it's it's that sense of dignity that maybe he just he didn't that was it's a it was an unassailable dignity that he had and Maybe he just wasn't ready for that. And if things being immaculate is important to you, like you're always going to judge yourself more harshly than anybody else is ever going to judge you. It's so and true. You've kind of got to feel comfortable with it yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And, you know, a little bit of deterioration is inevitable for all of us. It just, it's the way, it's the way of the world. I mean, I'm 58 now and, you know, I, I see that in myself and in the people around me who are aging with me, you know, my loved ones who are aging with me, you know. Um, but that said, you know, gosh, the kapuna, as we call them here in Hawaii, the, the elders bring so much value to the table you know, even even when their skills aren't quite up to par as they were in their twenties, it's they offer so much more. You know, and yeah. So 
I mean, I it just thank goodness we have Tony's recordings and the ones mm. that every now and then emerge from <laughs> from the back of a closet or something, you know, the stuff that that still comes out now and then and just takes our breath away and astonishes us anew. Wow. I think that's one of the lovely things about acoustic music, sort of roots music, or like non-commercial music, really. So blues and folk and jazz and all of that is people understand that if you've been doing it for 50 or 60 years, you've probably got something interesting to say that's worth hearing. Whereas in the world of pop music, you know, if you're old, you're just old, unless you're the Rolling Stones, but that's sort of a separate story in their own right. But people accept with roots music that if you've been around a long time, you're going to be worth listening to. And it's not necessarily about the speed or perfection you had when you were young it's just about having something to say it's true it's true yeah and you know I think I think maybe a lot of a lot of older musicians you know maybe get that and and some of them just it's it's just hard to get past the the perfection and whatever other Mm. whatever other demons they've got going you know it's just it's hard life in the public eye. I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it, Matt. I, I don't know how people do it. You really have to be very comfortable with yourself and, and just, I I mean, it, it just going on the road with him, it was, it was kind of terrifying for somebody like me who is always behind the scenes, you know, to see the way people react to somebody like that. And there's always, people always want something. It is. They always want a little something, a little exchange, mm. a little, you know, a little, a little something. And, you know, for somebody who is shy or, you know, has, has any, likes privacy, I, I can see where that would be. That would be tough. Yeah. And I guess people, you know, I guess people who want something, would often see it as a little thing and not see the price that it costs the person to give it and think, oh, it's, you know, right. an autograph or a smile or a quick chat or, you Anything. know. Anything, yeah. Yeah. No, it's so true. And you, the way you're talking about that, it's, it's such a funny balance of being an artist and having a thin enough skin to be vulnerable and communicate something because that's what we want. And a thick enough skin to cope with how the world deals with you. It's such mm-hmm. a fine balance. And it's interesting too, um, bluegrass music has changed. I'm going to say that over the years. Um, you know, I, it was really funny. I did an interview with Katie Daly and Tom Minty for our podcast, and we talked about a fantasy bluegrass festival. And, um, you know, they they talked about bluegrass festivals of old where uh, artists were really super accessible and, you know, you could, they would go out into the crowd and jam you know, into the, into the campground and jam. And, you know, that did happen a lot. I remember that. I grew up with that. In fact, one of my favorite Tony Rice stories, I was at Gray Fox in New York. um, And this was, I was, I was in my twenties. I was pretty young and out in a field with my sister and a few other people. And we were sitting around a lantern, passing around a bottle of wine and singing songs and uh we found some lovely three-part harmony and not on bluegrass music because we didn't all share the same bluegrass so we found something by Crosby Stills and Nash and started singing that and uh there's this figure in the shadows 
comes walking up with with a with another person arm in arm and um and it was tony and he stood there and listened for a few minutes and you know said that was mighty fine girls you know keep it up mm-hmm. you know it was just and that was i wish i wish i'd uh i wish i'd been able to sing with him matt i've since found my voice, I guess, as a bluegrass singer. I sing a little bit only in jams, but I wish I'd been able to sing with him. Isn't that a funny thing? Yeah. Mm. There's a there's a certain kind of communication that happens through music that mm-hmm. you know is its own thing. And I asked him, you know, even when we were traveling, I asked him if he had a list of songs that he might sing, you know, if he were able to again. And I think always in the back of his mind, he had something germinating, you know. Hmm. So yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things that not as, as not particularly a songwriter, but a collector of songs for his sort of voice. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of what what Tony did as a singer was just to collect various songs together that that he could do something with. Mm. Yeah, and his interpretation of them. Mm. Was just, I, I think it's going to rain today. I mean, how how unlikely for him to cover that song, but how how beautiful and effective and I mean, what a what a beautiful interpretation of that of that tune. I I just that's that's when I think about and uh, one of my very favorites is "Don't Let Your Deal Go Down." Have you heard that hmm. on Tony Trishka's? Uh, uh, what is it, Banjo Land album? And as Tony Trishka told me, you know, Tony was kind of losing his voice and reluctant to sing that. But it's it's a brilliant. I mean, it's just so good. It's so good. I don't listen to that if you have a chance. Mm. Yeah, that's one of. My, I love to talk about his music. It's just, as I said, it's such a part of my life. It's like sharing my favorite books or. You know, here, try this dish. <laughs> you know, it's uh, yeah. bluegrass. You were saying earlier that you find Church Street Blues hard to listen to now. Is that is it that specific record or is it sort of all of Tony's music now? Mm. That's the song specifically, Church Street Blues. Um, mm. It, it, yeah, it's... Uh, it always makes me a little misty but there's you know there are other other tunes of his that are like that i can't california autumn always you know california autumn i remember when you know when i was a 10 12 year old kid just that was that was what i listened to you know that was my i guess other kids were listening to mother goose or something and that i was just i was in love with that album um it it you know i grew up in a household that didn't have a bunch of money so i listened to that and i listened to mr poverty um you know that larry rice rice wrote which is a very a very sad song and it just you know that all spoke to me as a little kid made me want to write made me want to as Allison said, you could. Allison Krauss talked about just having a picture of the kind of man that Tony was, and I guess I can understand that because I that resonates with me. I, it 
his his music just painted pictures. It just painted such vivid pictures for a little kid, you know, a little girl who that I was, you know, little girl from a kind of a crazy family, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, I've talked to so many people whose lives his music has changed, whose lives his music has saved. How crazy is that, Matt, to be somebody whose life was saved by somebody's music, you know? Mm. And there's there's more than one. There's that happens that we've we got a lot of stories like that when we were collecting stories for this book. And and um I think there's there's a lot of them out there that we don't haven't even heard, you know. So hmm. And what about yeah. you? See, I want to ask you how you found Tony's. I say I want to interview the interviewer. <laughs> you know, I just sort of years ago. I I've been a musician for most of my life. Started out as a drummer, but I left a job maybe nearly twenty years ago, and they bought me a mandolin as a leaving present. And so I started much better than a it. gold watch. That's so exactly. much better. <gasps> exactly. <laughs> And I started learning to play it and then I already knew a bit of bluegrass and a bit of sort of country and old time and just, I guess, dug into the bluegrass a bit more. And then it was one of those things you pull on a string and you keep pulling and then you buy, I bought some compilation CD, I can't even remember what it was, and it had on it, um, which Tony track was it? It was, I've waited as long as I can. Oh. And I was just like, that is fantastic. Who's this dude? And then just, you know, went off finding Tony Rice. Wow. And that's, and you never looked back. (laughs) And I think for me, like amongst all of it, Church Street Blues is the record that is the one that I go back to and go back to and go back to because it's just got a bit of everything. Like I love hearing Tony play fast, bluesy breaks on, you know, breakneck songs, but I love him doing that thing that he does when he's playing on his own it's just like almost like a whole band with one guitar Hmm. and this voice over the top of it and just it's just such a just i don't know it's so wraps itself around you like from every angle it's like you know it's like a hug Hmm. i always think of his i always think of it as water because i i love i love you know i'm a i live in hawaii so i love snorkeling and it just for me it just it it's like being I don't know it's being flowed around and and embraced by something warm and I don't know just seamless and and timeless and just ever flowing flowing it just flows I all these words they seem so inadequate and I say that as a wordsmith it's like I just I've never found words to be able to accurately describe, but, but water, it, it, you know, the water, water moving, water flowing is, is how I always think of his playing. And uh, yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, the, he, he was great with the lightning fast stuff, but I, I love his slower playing. I do. I love the slower stuff. I love the more intimate stuff, you know. Hmm. Ah, I just, I love it all. It's really, and I miss him, and I wish he were still here to to share his music with us, you know. 
And that's it for this first episode. There is a second episode uh, that I'm going to put out in a week with some fantastic people in it as well. Um, Marcel Ardans from the Lessons of the Marcel channel talks about transcribing Tony's music. Uh, I talked to Jake Heddy, to Bob Minner. Um, there's just, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff to come in part two. Um, you know, things about where Tony's influence has gone, you know, how he's influenced a bunch of players, people talking about his guitar style. There's just, I mean, there's some great conversations to come. There's, there's a lot left of this celebration of Church Street Blues, and I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you next week. Um, but that's it for now. I'll see you next time. Happy picking. <laughs>